the children this morning can be dismissed for Children's Church. They'll head upstairs to the chapel. As I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, we have brought Pastor Ron and Kay back out of retirement. Kay is leading Children's Church upstairs this morning. They helped us in Clubhouse Chapel, or they will be helping us in Clubhouse Chapel this coming Wednesday, and were with us at the kickoff last week. Many of you were in Pastor Ron's Sunday School class this morning, so I'm grateful that they are helping us and working with us again. This morning, we have uh, our men's retreat speaker, Andrew Knight, is with us this morning. He is a pastor elder, a campus ministry leader in Boise, Idaho. Uh, he has, has been with us in the past. In 2014, he was our men's retreat speaker. And so that's kind of the highest praise that you can give to someone is to invite them to come back. And not only did we invite him to come back, but he was scheduled to come last year, and we kept him for another year. So we kind of asked him back twice, and uh, we're grateful that he was with us this past weekend at Eagle Pass. Uh, did a great job of leading us uh, to the Word and to connecting with men, and I'm grateful for him. Brian Sharp is going to come and going to read the Scripture from Mark uh, chapter 1, chapter 4, Brian tells me, chapter 4, and... Uh, 1 through 11, and then Andrew's going to come and to share. So Brian, come and read the scripture for us in Mark chapter 4, and then Andrew, come and share with us this morning. I hope it's Matthew. That's where I'm supposed to be. So um, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, uh, turn to your pew to your pew Bibles, page 108, or 809, if, if you want to follow along. 809 in your pew Bible. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Brian, thank you, Pastor Jason. You know, as I was thinking, as, uh, I think what I did last night at Mavericks is I told Jason, Hey, the passage is out of Mark 4. I then told Brian, I need you to read Matthew 4, because my passage is really Matthew 4, the, temp- the tempting and, and tried nature of Jesus. And I thought, well, man, what can I preach out of Mark 4? So I'm scurrying over there going, goodness, if that's the text we're going to do, let me figure this out. I saw that it was the parable of the sower, so I thought maybe I could do that. We can talk about the difference. It's so fitting, but I feel like you guys would uncover me being such a farming community. Oh, that's totally wrong. But I had a good time with your men this weekend. It was, uh, it was a gift. It was a real pleasure. Can I, does this come off? Does it bend down? Excellent. Um, 
You're like, that costs us about $1,000 if you drop it, so please don't. And uh, just, just loved it. I went fishing, hunted, ate, laughed, sat together with God's word together. I only caught one fish. I was shamed by Stephen who caught 30. Roger caught 12. And they're like, the city slicker catches one. I did catch a bluegill. No one else caught a bluegill, but I caught one. I caught one. And I was doing pretty good. You know, Pastor Jason handed me a shotgun, and I hit the first two clays just right out of that. I don't know why you yell pull. All Brian did was hit a button. He's not pulling a thing. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why it's called that. But he's just hitting a button over there. And and then they give me the automatic weapon shotgun that holds like nine shells or whatever. And if you've got nine shots, you can hit a clay. You can hit one clay with nine shots. So I, I wasted most of my shells on one shot. But I had a good time. It was a lot of fun and was thrilled uh, to be at Eagle Pass Lodge. And Pastor Jason and Ron and Mark Hoven and then Steve at, at the lodge were incredible hosts. So thank you. Thank you, men. Uh, thank you for loving me and making me feel so at home. And one of the things that just really stood out to me about your men was just the... the the genuineness, the humility, the godliness. If they're an indication of where Jesus is taking this church, I think it's in good hands. And uh, I think they are men worthy of respect. Well, I'm a Boise boy. I'm, a, I'm originally from Atlanta, but we live in Boise now. My, my wife and I, we have four children. Three of them were unplanned, but we have four. And two of them came at one time. Our anniversary is April the 4th, and our twins were born on April the 4th. We haven't celebrated an anniversary in 12 years. I look forward to being doing that when they move out of the house. But I got two nine-year-olds. I got a six-year-old named Callum. And then we finally, right before COVID, got our little cherry on top, Molly K. Knight. So we got our little girl. And uh, so she's at home with mom right now. Uh, I'm a pastor elder at our church, Table Rock. And then I'm involved, my wife and I are involved in campus evangelism and discipleship at Boise State. So my wife came to faith at the University of Georgia her freshman year uh, through one of her sorority sisters and a guy on my football team began to do a Bible study through the Gospel of John. Both of our lives were changed by Jesus Christ. And now that's how we spend most of our time with Greek students, not actually from Greece, but fraternity and sorority students, and then also mainly among athletic teams. And we really love uh, what we get to do. We love Boise. One of the things I was telling a group of guys, I can't remember if it was during a talk or at a uh, a little table discussion is in, in most places in our country, and you go to a, a hamburger joint, you know, there's four or five hamburgers to choose from, and you get fries on the slide. Sorry, my bad. Sorry, Alan. Um, we get, we get, it's Alan's fault, not me. Um, and you get fries on the side. But in Boise, you order one or two types of burgers, but there's like eight or nine types of fries to choose from because we're the potato state. So you can choose eight or nine types of French fries, purple ones, orange ones, regular ones, russet potatoes, on and on. You get fry spices and fry sauces, and we have a good time. Well, I thought I would just talk quickly before we jump into our text what we talked about this weekend as men. And we really talked on four topics. The first one is that we are pursued men by Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is pursuing us even in our failure to conform us to his image. And as we are conformed into his image that we are becoming pure men. Men whose conduct mimics our Christ-cleaned consciences. And then as, as, as Christ is, is moving and growing us as men, he's calling us to be perseverant men. Men who, who through trial press on, see their faith grown, and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then finally, last night, 
uh, no, yesterday morning, all the days are blurring together now, we talked about men of prayer. Men who ask God to answer his promises. And now this morning, we are going to look at the testing of the God-man. And the way that Jesus was tested, in, in, in many ways, is probably ways that Satan will be looking to hook us as well. And so we're going to talk about this morning just a, a tested and tried Savior, yet a triumphant one. And man, just, to be, just to, to be confronted with the reality where we have failed, Jesus has been victorious. And so as we look at our Savior and how he triumphs over Satan. We're going to remember our salvation, that Jesus' victory is ours in Christ, and as we follow his lead, so too comes our sanctification. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump into Matthew 4. Heavenly Father, uh, would you give us just what we sang about? A holy God. Might we see the glory of God of your Son, Jesus Christ, the flawless, the faithless one. Our life, in place of our lives, our substitute is one who fulfilled all of your demands perfectly. God, might we be confronted by his victory and his love and his holiness. And God, might we be brought to worship. God, thank you that we have your Son, our Savior, help us now open our eyes as we behold the wonderful things in your word. We do ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 again here out of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, what we're going to see in Jesus here in the context is what it looks like. We're going to see this reenactment of what God's people ought to have done, what they ought to have been like in the wilderness. And so where Israel failed in the wilderness for 40 years in complaint and in conflict, we are going to see the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we read this, we see Jesus representing what does it mean to be the true Israel. What does it mean uh, to be the true people of God? And as we consider this, we're going to see glimpses too that as we not only trace this back to the book of Exodus, but where Adam and Eve in the garden blew it when they were confronted and faced Satan face to face, we're going to see where our Jesus, the truest image of God, confronted Satan. And he didn't have to leave, but Satan was the one that was forced to leave. So when you think about just the context here in Matthew 4, there are these trigger words, right? Wilderness, 40 days, tempted, led by the Spirit, and hungry. God's people were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus here for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert and into the wilderness. God's people, how were they led? By a pillar of fire by night and by a cloud by day. God's people were tempted and tried in the wilderness, and Jesus now is also tempted here in this desert place. And just as the Israelites complained about their hunger, we're going to find out Jesus also shared that hunger. So th these were designed to take us back to Exodus and to remind us where God's people failed, Jesus will succeed. And so as we come to this passage, we should be saying, and God's people have failed to follow as they ought, but there is one who has not failed. 
And over a period of 40 days in hunger, in a wilderness, face to face with Satan himself, even Moses could not deliver his people to the promised land. But let's hook our train to Jesus. He is the only one that can take us there. When you come to Matthew, that's what we're confronted with. There is one who flawlessly, faithfully prevailed. Where histories and millennia and hundreds of years where God's people have failed, here is the one that we can follow. And that's what Matthew pictures here. And this just reflects good Bible reading, doesn't it? That when we read the Bible, the Bible is, it's not a mirror where it reflects my image from it. And then I reinsert myself into it and try to do all the things that Jesus did. It's pointing us. It's driving us. There is only one that can take us where we want to go. And it's Jesus Christ. And so we're reminded, and even in John chapter 5, where Jesus said, yeah, you search the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees because you think that in them are life, yet it's these that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And Matthew chapter 4 is beckoning us to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue in the text, verses 3 and 4. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. You're going to hear that three more or two more times. It is written. Jesus is placing his foundation. He is placing his fight in what has been written down by God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what we see is we see the tempter. He's he's tempting Jesus in the same way that Adam was tempted in the garden. And what Satan wants to do is he's seeking to question and to uh, bring doubt on two main things. One, God's character, and two, God's word. And that's the ploy of the devil. He wants you to doubt God's character, his love, his compassion for you. And number two, he wants you to distrust what God has said. And if he can get you to doubt God's love and God's word, then he has you. Just like he had our parents in the garden. And this is the preeminent problem that Satan brings. We know what he is. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. And he wants to invalidate the truthfulness of God's word in your life. Even if just for a split second. And so in Genesis, he starts out that tempter, that serpent. Did God really say? that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. And then he starts out with Jesus, if you are the son of God. Is that really a question? Did Jesus really have that question? Was was he worried about who he was? Remember, if you look just previous in the passage before Matthew 4, at the end of Matthew 3, God has broken open the heavens at Jesus' baptism. He's descended his spirit visibly in front of all of the people. And what is echoed out of heaven? This is my son. I am well pleased with him. So as we think about this, and we think about what's going on, just like Jesus, who are you listening to? (coughs) Who are we listening to? Is Jesus going to listen to the Lord, his heavenly father? Or... Is he going to listen to this liar? And what does this liar want Jesus to do? He wants him to perform. He wants him to achieve. He wants him to prove himself by what he does as opposed 
to remember God's faithful proclamation over him. And in the same way, it's good to remember, especially for our men, the Christian life is a fight for identity. It's a fight for your identity. A recent Gallup poll just reported, it's gone through, and it, it followed all the way back to 1989, that especially for men, and especially at work, what we do is no longer, our job is no longer what we do to earn a living. Our job is who we are. Our work is no longer what you do. Your work is who you are. Seven out of 10 graduates today, that's their tie-in, their identity, their job, their work is who they are. <clears throat> now, as we think about men, men specifically, Satan wants self-made men. That's what he's digging for, self-made men with a prove-it mentality. But Jesus wants remade men who have been purchased by the only one that is ever shown to be proven. That's what Christ is after versus what Satan is after. Now, I think about my, my son. Can I get a drink of water if someone is faithful to do that for me? I'm just, my, my throat's a little <coughs> dry from when I last raised my voice. Thank you. Um, but when I think about um, my, my recent son, Callum, he's been playing flag football. And one of the things that I've, we, we've enjoyed, and he's, our, he's my, our must, thank you, bro. Thank you, Matthew. He's our, he's our most aggressive child. And one of the things that we've had a tough time with Callum is just trying to get him to practice and somewhat stay composed. And <clears throat> one of the things that's been hard for him is I've been wondering, why is my boy having such a hard time getting to practice? Like just an hour before practice starts, just in complete tears, lost complete uh, composure. And it finally became clear. Um, a sixth grader at his school, he's in first grade, told him he was little. And he came to practice every day thinking, I'm just little, I'm little, I'm little. And what am I doing as a father? I'm looking to call and to drown out the lies about my son with my love, support, who he is, who God's made him, and his value and his worth. And in a sense, I think that's what we battle. We battle these voices in your heavenly father, just like it was with Jesus. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, is looking to drown out the lies that we commonly hear, and especially from the ones that we get from the workplace. Now, as we think about this, Satan not only comes with this prove it mentality to Jesus, but he mingles it with this idea of bread, bread for the hungry. Now, could Jesus have turned a stone to bread? Sure. He turned water to wine. That wouldn't have been an issue. And so, as you see, Jesus went without bread for those 40 days, but he didn't go without food. God didn't lead Jesus into the wilderness to die. He didn't lead him into the wilderness that I go without food. And as we turn to God's word for our identity, Jesus now turns to God's word for his fulfillment. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You see, Satan, this word is not just my identity. This word, my father's word, is my nourishment. We might remember and we, if, we, if we were to leap forward in a couple gospel books to John 4, and Jesus is with a Samaritan woman around the well. And his disciples have conked out. They can't take it anymore. They go into town to get some food, and they come back, and they give their food to Jesus. And he's like, oh, I have food that you don't know about. And they're kind of like, who gave this guy food? You know, he's got to be starving. And Jesus' response to that is this. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of God and to finish his work. You see, 
<clears throat> Jesus is eating Satan's lunch in not succumbing to sin. He's eating in the very moment that he walks faithfully and flawlessly in following his God. And so by holding to God's word, by holding to God's word and, and resisting any idolatrous and self-made identities, he is finding fulfillment even in his fasting. That yes, Jesus went without bread, but he didn't go without nourishment. So men, let's make a conclusion point. God will not provide life for us by the fact of being a breadwinner. That's not who we are. That's not where we find our identity and what we achieve and what we accomplish and what we win for our households. That does not make us who we are. We don't let work, but we let God's word shape us and mold us to conclude our worth and value. We are his beloved son because of our tie to Jesus, and with us he is well pleased in Christ. And so Jesus invites us, come, come, all who are weary, rest in his work and not in our own. Let's go to verses 5 through 7. So if temptation number one was prove yourself by what you do, temptation number two is to justify and to validate yourself by what others say or do about you and maybe even what you can do to get God to validate you in a different way. Let's look at verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now what I love about this is Jesus, Jesus doesn't disagree with Satan's statement about what is said in the prophecy that is given. But the situation forces him to trump that with a truth, with another truth that you shall not test the Lord your God. And so this time, what we're going to have in play is, again, Satan is after Jesus' identity. If you are the son of God, then this. But he's not going to tell him to prove himself. He's going to try to get God the Father to prove him, validate him, justify himself in another way. And isn't this what we do? Maybe not always with God, but instead of looking, if we can't find validation here and justification here, we generally look for it out here instead of looking for it up there. And so Satan's kind of route in this temptation, it has two parts. Number one, Satan kind of comes with a Bible under his arm this time. He's like, man, Jesus whipped me with a Bible the first time. I'm not going let to let him whip me with a Bible the second time. And so it's, it's, it's true that even Satan himself, he masquerades around like an angel of light. He will posture and present himself other than he is. And number two, he's going to try to lure Jesus into this pride of presumption. Presuming that God will do something for you to reinforce how he feels about you. What a scene it would have been. Think about it. Jesus actually throws himself off the temple. The hundreds below gasp when they see legions of angels swooping down and saving him from his fall. The crowds go wild and they worship him as the son of God. And you see, Satan wants to lure Jesus with that image of prideful presumption. Okay, God, if you love me, then you'll do this. If you do, then you love me, and if you don't, you must not. So when you think about it, don't you see the position 
that that puts Jesus in. Satan wants to put him in a superior position over God the Father to elevate himself over his Father. That it's this position of pride that when we say, God, if you do this, then that means that. And if you don't, then it can't possibly mean that. And that's what we do to God. We cage him. We control him. We fit him in this box. And if he doesn't meet our demands, then he must not be who he says he is. How sinful it is to put God in our box and to make false conclusions about him when he doesn't fit in. And that's the lure of what Satan is going about. Think about it this way. How would God love and glorify Jesus? It wouldn't be by saving him from death. That's not how God showed his love and glorified his son. It's not that he saved him from death. He raised him from death. That's how God would show his love and glorify his son, not saving him from death, but by raising him from death. He exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. And when you think about the proof that you need, when you bank on, does God love me? He did. He sent his son. He sent his son No man has greater love than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And when you doubt concerning your marriage or about a child or about your work or a bank account, does God love me? Answer, yes. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for you, how will he not also with him freely give us all other things? Those are the promises that we bank on. And so number one, we don't prove ourselves in what we do. And number two, we don't prove ourselves by what we demand or others say or do for us, including God. And number three, how about power and possessions? Let's read verses eight and nine. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So Satan concludes, I've tried to get this son of man, God's son, on identity twice, and I haven't been able to do it. Now I'm going to get him on responsibility. Satan knows that Jesus will rule the world by ruling over evil, but maybe Satan can offer a convenient way out. I will let you, in essence, he's saying, Jesus, I'll let you rule this world. You can rule it in all of its glory if you do one thing, if you succumb to evil. That was Satan's offer. So the first thing we learn about sin is that sin lies. It's deceptive. It's manipulative. It deceives and manipulates us into thinking that it will be better. It will be easier if we sin. Lust works this way. Anger works this way. Greed works this way. Gluttony works this way. It will be better. Eat more. Lust more. Earn more. Be more bad. It will be better. It is a lie. And when we think about this Jesus, what would have happened if Jesus just would have sinned? He would have never have ruled the world. 
He would have never had the world in all of its glory. He would have been ruled by evil and been ruled by the evil one. He would have lost his ability to save the world. And I can kind of see, you can kind of picture maybe in a sense how this temptation evolved. Jesus, just bow down to me. On this mountain, all by ourselves, no one else is here, just you and me. It can be our little secret. You bow down, and it's yours. Just a small compromise, a small sin, and you will get exactly what you are after. And that's where we as men fail. That's where we fall. It's the secret sins, it's the small compromises that we're lured in, and they destroy and eat our lives. We keep them in the dark. We keep them under wraps. We continue to worship our idols in our hidden worship closets, and we tithe our money and our time to small little idols in our life. And so I just want to end by talking about two things. Men, number one, what type of power are we after? What type of power are we being offered? Is it the power that proceeds from the world? Is it the power that proceeds from weakness? We just remember the words of Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. You will gain power from whatever you bow down to, and it will be limited by whatever you bow down to. If it's money, your power's limited by how much you can earn. If it's brawn, you're limited physically. If it's in your accomplishments, it's as long as you can achieve. If it's in popularity, your power's as long as people like you. Whatever you bow down to, your power is limited to it. And so what do we want? We want to divest ourselves of that power and invest ourselves with the power that is available. That we are an empowered people. That the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the very power that inhabits you and me right now. And calls us to give more generously and to befriend more genuinely, and to be married more sacrificially, and to hope more consistently, and to forgive more completely. That's the transformer that we have access to. And we're pulling ourselves out of these 110 outlets to plug ourselves into the transformer of real power. That we are an empowered people, invested by God's spirit to follow him and to carry out his ways. And the second thing I just want to highlight is what type of possessions are we after? It just makes me think about the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man upon walking found. And when he found it, he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. These are very un... Think about this when we take that parable in light of what of of what Satan said. He took Jesus over the mountain and said, look at the world. Look at the kingdoms. Look at their glory. You can, it can all be yours. What profit it would be, Jesus, to gain this whole world, says Satan. And yet he never tells you the second part. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his Soul. Satan wants to steal your soul. 
It wants to deaden your soul. Jesus is offering us real possessions. The possessions, go after the possessions that cause you to forsake all other things to have it. So as we think about these three temptations, when put in the same test of being a self-made man and performing, of getting others to validate and justify my existence or putting God in a certain type of can or box to meet me on my demands and elevate myself over him or pride and possessions. You put me in that place as we put any of us and we fail. We fail miserably. But we have a savior who ever in every temptation encountered the devil with it is written and he didn't succumb to the sins in the wilderness where God's people once fell. But he was flawless. That is how he saves us. That's how he redeems us and how he rescues us. He is the one we look to. He is the one who fulfills God's law in our place. And James 4, 7 is the perfect picture of Jesus. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I want to end here in verse 11. Let me go ahead and read it. Matthew 4, 11. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. The devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. How far is this the story of the book of Genesis? What do we get at the end of the book of Genesis? Angels are not ministering to Adam and Eve. Angels are swinging swords, barring the human race from the Garden of Eden. That's the book of Genesis. And here, in the book of Matthew... The angels come around Jesus. Jesus isn't the one that was barred and had to leave. Who who had to flee? Satan had to flee. And in Christ, what does it look like now for angels and how we will interact with them one day? They will not bar you from paradise. They will be beckoning you saying, what's it like? What's it like? 1 Peter chapter 1 says that our salvation... What is it like to be chosen of God, saved by God, redeemed, sacrificed for? It says there are things in which angels long to look. The angels are going to be tapping you on the shoulder as you walk through the halls of paradise in heaven going, what is it like to be redeemed? And we will stand there because of nothing that we've done Nothing that Adam and Eve could do. Nothing that God's people have been able to do for the last 2,000 years. Because of our Christ, who's walked faithfully and flawlessly and fulfilled God's law in the face of the evil one. And we take our hope and our trust in him. We will live in the very reality that angels will never be able to experience. A beautiful thing because of our Christ and our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible status and the position that we have because of your son. That he has saved us, he has redeemed us, he has bought us. God, I do pray that you would make us a church of men and women who find our worth and our value in your proclamation and in your word and not in what we perform, not in the justification or validation of others, not in power, in possessions, but that we find it in that we are your beloved sons and daughters with whom you are well pleased.
that comes only and exclusively in your son, Jesus. Thank you for him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Andrew. Grateful, grateful for Andrew and for his ministry, for his leading us in the word this morning. We're going to sing again the song that we had just before Andrew came, Show Us Christ. So please, as the worship team comes, please stand with me and we'll sing together at the close here. Oh, 
This morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go and be grateful. Thanks for coming this week.